Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Thank you for being part of the show. Thank you for all the active work you do for help spreading the word of the show, because you're doing a very good job on that. To my enormous gratification and immeasurable delight, uh, the number of people and the metrics I watch meticulously and obsessively, the number of people keeps going up. And and that makes me feel that uh, I am hand in hand, arm in arm and shoulder to shoulder with an entire vast family of happy warriors. Look, uh, this is the most 5F show in the entire digital universe. You know that. Um, It's a show where we focus on things that you really care about, things that matter to your life, family, friendships, faith, finances, and fitness. Those five F's, those are the things you really care about. Let's face it. If you've got a fabulous family life and you've got wonderful friends and you're in okay with God, you occasionally have a conversation with him and all is cool and your finances do not stress you out and you're physically fit, well then, you need to have two bald spots in the carpet next to your bed where your knees go every night as you utter your prayers of gratitude and appreciation to the Almighty for that incredible list of blessings. What a catalog of contentment that really is. And so, yes, there is no other show in the entire digital universe that's as much about five Fs. For instance, the show, I think, is often described by its enthusiasts as fearless, funny, formidable, fierce, and funny. Did I say funny? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, how about fantastic? Now, I know that that's uh, uh, a little bit much, isn't it? I mean, that perhaps begins to escalate self-promotion to new and, and unprecedented levels of obnoxiousness. But I, but I do think that they have to be five F. So yes, it's going to be fantastic, fearless, funny, formidable, and fierce. Those are the words. So yes, everything about the show, five Fs. It's a show for you, happy warriors, facing every challenge in your lives with a bounce to your step and a serene smile playing around your lips. You happy warriors who radiate a heartwarming aura of confidence to all around you, even when deep down inside you, you occasionally feel a few chilly tendrils of fear. But you quickly banish them and you replace them with your firm tenacity that easily triumphs over the crooks, creeps, clowns, and cranks that populate every corner of this beautiful planet. And you never, ever 
use the dangerously destructive phrase that can turn all your highest ambitions and all your most noble dreams into a crackling fireball of useless ash. What is this dangerously destructive phrase? I'm going to tell it to you right now. Hey, you know what? This is a good time to please put your hands over the children's ears. I don't want them to hear it. Here it comes. The words that will pulverize your plans like a weed whacker tackles daisies. Ready? Here it is. Never say it. Don't let the kiddies hear it. I can't help it. I can't help it. Eviscerate this phrase, I can't help it, from your vocabulary. As long as even a microscopic morsel of those appalling words linger in your soul, it will spring out ferociously to sabotage every positive thing you do. Whenever you choose unwisely to relax instead of to work, you'll hear that tiny but terrifying voice whispering the seductive words, I can't help it. Whenever you yield to your addiction, whatever it is, your incredibly important and valuable internal sense of shame will be fatally expunged by the words rising unbidden to your mind. I can't help it. Whenever you speak shortly or angrily to a loved one, before you can even promise yourself never to do it again and to hurt the people you love, up well those words like a foul-smelling bubble from some noxious cesspool. I can't help it. Bad, bad words. Very bad words. Blowtorch your soul, if necessary, to get rid of them. Saying or even thinking, I can't help it, means that you've given yourself permission to stop thinking. You've ended all your self-analysis, and you have terminated any chance of introspection. And introspection lies at the heart of your growth and your development. By saying, I can't help it, no more thought is necessary. As a matter of fact, no more thought is even allowed. You've effectively condemned yourself to eternal stagnation. No, not damnation. Different sort of show. But eternal stagnation. Because when you say, I can't help it, you're saying you are what you are. You th you're saying to yourself, I can't change. I, it's, just, it's just me. I, I am what I am. I'm no different from a cat or a cow or a camel or kangaroo. Because a cat or a camel or a cow or a kangaroo, tomorrow or in five years' time, it's still going to be a cat or a cow or a camel or a kangaroo, nothing else. But we human beings are capable of transformation. You do not have to be anything like you are tomorrow, today. The way you are today has no bearing on what you might decide to do with your life tomorrow. 
I know that I would not like to be judged for who I was ten years ago. I'm even sometimes embarrassed when I think back to what I was ten years ago, because I've worked on some things, successfully with some, unsuccessfully with others, I've failed in many things, but by and large, I'm a little bit better of a person than I was ten years ago. And that's a good thing. I don't want to be judged the way I was. And that's how it is. Uh, There are are people who uh, today or yesterday, maybe, uh, were, were people who had not made much of their lives. And all of a sudden, three months go by and everything has changed. This is what human beings are capable of. But as long as you allow to linger in the darker and dirtier corners of your mind, those dreadful words, I can't help it. What essentially you're saying to yourself is, hey, I have no control. I'm a passive creature at the whim of outside forces about which I can do absolutely nothing. There are people who, because they have extensively used these words, I can't help it, they've lost the ability to think something through. Right? That makes sense. If I can't help it is true, then why bother trying to figure anything out? It is what it is. You become a fatalistic loser. How do such people function among other people when they don't have the ability or the desire, that's even worse, they don't even have the desire to think something through. The answer is easy. They come up with the narcotic of the lazy mind, slogans. That's right. The narcotic of the lazy mind is a simple slogan. And anything ancient is automatically indicted by their silly slogans because they are at the whim of the latest issue of Psychology Today magazine. They are at the whim of the latest inane theory produced by some cretin with a PhD at the local kindergarten. And they are at the whim of anybody or anything that comes up with the newest slogan. They instantly adopt that and it becomes their northern star for navigating their way through life. Now, anything ancient is automatically indicted by them. But uh, let's acknowledge there are some things having to do with the past that are indeed anachronistic and now known to be untrue. During the first couple of decades of the 20th century, about 100 years ago, uh, many doctors used to recommend that patients go down into radium mines and spend days down there being bombarded by radioactive waves, radioactivity. We now know that those people developed painful and horrible maladies from radioactivity poisoning. Radium beams out radioactivity. Uh, Many of you will have heard the story of the women who used to paint numbers onto watch faces 
in the first part of the 20th century using radium paint. The reason is because, and I don't know if any of you have seen a watch from that period, you shouldn't keep it around your body too much because it is emitting radioactivity. But you can see the numbers as clear as anything in the middle of the night, no matter how dark it is, because energy, electro, uh, uh, radioactive energy is being emitted by the radium, and it makes the electrofluorescent paint glow, and you can read the numbers in the, in the darkest conditions. And, they, and the women who used to spend their days working in factories, hand-painting the dials of watches and clocks with radium paint, uh, all became very ill. Many didn't survive. So that would be uh, an ancient idea that was just plain wrong. Eugenics. Eugenics. There were a lot of respectable people who believed that eugenics was a rightful science and true. We now know better. There were doctors who used to believe in bloodletting. If, you know, if, if, you're, if you're unwell, the first thing to do is let some of your blood out. And they'd put a cut on your back and insert a hot glass over the cut. And as the glass cooled, it created a vacuum and it would suck blood out. Many doctors even used a really disgusting insect called a leech. And they'd put leeches on your back as you lay on your tummy on a doctor's bench. And these horrible creatures would grow fat, gorged on your blood. And then they'd take them off to use for the next patient. All of this really defective medicine. Uh, scientists used to believe that there's a thing called the ether that carries radio waves, right? Because radio waves must need something to allow them to propagate in, right? How can anything travel through nothing? And so all the space between the sun and the moon is occupied by ether and radio waves. Well, it's completely untrue. There is something extraordinary about radiomagnetic, electromagnetic radiation, and it doesn't need anything to propagate. So a lot of these ideas are, are absolutely wrong. How can you distinguish between the ideas that, uh, of the past that still hold true and those that are wrong? Well, uh, in the area of scientific discovery, there is no reason to suppose that ideas of the past are necessarily valid because it is true that every year that goes by, we do find out more and more about the natural universe in which we live. But if, on the other hand, the topic doesn't concern natural science, but it concerns immutable human circumstances, then Obviously, the further and further we move along, the more likely we are to incorporate error and mistakes. And so, for instance, the fact that human beings spend uh, six or eight hours every 24 unconscious in the arms of Morpheus fast asleep, that has not changed ever. And so when you read about people's methods of how do they deal with sleeplessness and and what how to make sure they get up and all of these are questions and struggles that we've had for thousands of years and so ancient information is just as valuable maybe more valuable than modern information you're not going to turn to ancient jewish wisdom for information on how to play tennis 
but uh, you might turn to ancient Jewish wisdom for information on how to balance leisure and relaxation with work, focus, and productivity, because that is a struggle that people have been engaged in for thousands of years. Every human being has always said to themselves, I would really rather lie down on the grass and drink a pleasant drink than actually get up and plow the field or mow the lawn. Every human being has grappled with that in one way or another. And so for dealing with procrastination, for coping with laziness, for overcoming temptation, these are all things that you turn to ancient wisdom for. Male-female relationships, both healthy and unhealthy. Yeah, those things haven't changed. Men have been tempted by unwholesome sex for thousands of years, since the days of Adam. And so, yeah, there's no reason to suppose that modern information is more useful or apt or applicable or true than ancient information. In fact, rather the reverse. And uh, relationships with children, with siblings, with parents, uh, these are things that haven't changed. Uh, Most of us work eight or ten hours a day. Now, it's true, we do different work. What my grandfather did is different from what I do. My great-grandfather couldn't have conceived of the things his many grandchildren or great-grandchildren do in order to serve other human beings and thereby earn a living. He couldn't possibly have known. And yet, there it is the actual, the work we do may be different, but our relationship to the work hasn't changed. Why should it? Of course, it's the same thing. And so, among the slogans that people who do not think, people who tend to use the phrase, I can't help it, either in word or in thought, tend to dispel ideas without thought by simply trying to combat them with slogans. Today, one of the most crushing answers that people use to dispel a point or an observation or an argument with which they disagree is also the stupidest. Here's what they say. Come on, don't you know this is the 21st century? Or they say, hello, the 1950s are calling for you. Or they say, like, what are you, 93 years old? Or they say, come on, what does the word modern mean to you? In other words, you're wrong because today many people don't think the way you do. You're in the minority, and you're wrong because those things you believe are old-fashioned, they're primitive, they're Neanderthal, and automatically that means that they are wrong as well. If this silly way of arguing had any validity at all, there could be no Newton's laws of motion, since they're pretty old-fashioned, right? from the uh, late 17th century, yeah, and yet they're the foundation of modern physics. 
um, there could, I mean, one that I find very interesting is uh, Gauss's law for magnetism. Don't, you know, I'm not trying to turn you off. It's, um, uh, it's one of the four Maxwell equations that underlie classical thermoelectrodynamics. And if, um, if you've ever come across a, uh, um, something that people claim to be a perpetual motion machine, and they tell you it runs on magnets, then you can tell them, save me the trouble and just explain to me how you've defeated Gauss's law. Because Gauss's law says that every magnet must have two poles. There is no such thing as a magnetic monopole. Every magnet must have a north pole and a south pole. And so if the north pole attracts the wheel in your perpetual motion machine, it'll quickly reach the point where the south pole will repel it. So whatever you think you've gained by the attraction of the north pole will be dissipated by the repulsion of the south pole. So Gauss's law is, is pretty important because even today, people try and, and gull the, uh, the foolish by using magnets to come up with perpetual motion machines. Um, but Gauss's law has been around for a very long time. Should we dismiss it because it's old-fashioned? Hello, this is the 21st century. Yeah, it is. And Gauss's law is even more important today than it was before. Um, I think that there are only two sexes in the world. There's male and there's female. That's what I think. Hello, 1950s calling for you. Don't you know this is the 21st century? Yeah, I do know it's the 21st century. And what I just told you is still true. The words from back at the beginning of Genesis, male and female, he created them. Um, you know, I take those words seriously. And I'm not prepared to change my mind on it simply because some trendy magazine or trendy politician or trendy judge or trendy show business personality decided that sexuality exists on a, on a, on a spectrum. And I can choose one day I can identify as this one day. No, I reject that. The fact that that principle has been around for a very long time doesn't make it any less valid. And so, in other words, people will sometimes tell you that you are wrong simply because many or even most people today don't think the way you do. It means you've got to be a sheep. You have to follow the masses. And that really is very much what goes on. In fact, a great deal of the reaction to the COVID virus of the first half of 2020 in the United States and in many other countries is based on the fact that you can get the majority of people to behave like sheep. You absolutely can. Because the secular worldview that has been imposed on the culture for the last at least 50 years, tends to make people believe that anything old has been replaced by the new, tends to make people believe in slogans, 
not ideas, and to make people follow what the masses say, regardless of even analyzing whether it could be false. And of course, governments, tyrannical governments in particular, count very much on this, that you can always depend on the mass and the majority of people to follow the crowd. And so what I'm encouraging you as a happy warrior is learn not to follow the crowd. There there are plenty of times the crowd is right, but analyze it and you will know which those times are and you'll know which times they are not. So uh, um, even Darwin's theory of evolution, by the way, it must surely be wrong because it's nearly 200 years old as well, right? No, obviously, those who live by the slogan pick and choose, but that's not the way a happy warrior functions. We function by analyzing, by studying, by asking ourselves questions, by discussing these things with our friends and family because You know, it's like grinding a flour between two millstones. When you're not sure of an idea and you bring it up with a family member or a friend and you discuss it, what's happening is it's being ground between two millstones. And what comes out will be flour and chaff. And you'll be able to easily know which is which. It's a wonderful advantage to be able to discuss these ideas with somebody whom you know, you like, and you trust. That's a wonderful thing because it grinds the idea, allows you to get to its roots. And so this is one of the things for which happy warriors need friends and need family, people to discuss challenging ideas with. But um, silly or not, arguing that something is untrue only because it is not seen that way by modern people, that's very popular. Stupid or not, rejecting an opinion only because it sounds old-fashioned happens countless times every day on Twitter and Facebook. Let me uh, present to you Exhibit A. Exhibit A is um, the uh, Guardian newspaper, a very prestigious but very left-leaning newspaper in the United Kingdom, ran an article by a woman called Emily Halnon, and Emily uh, published her piece in the Guardian in February of 2020. And uh, I have to tell you a little bit about Emily's article. It's really very fascinating. Basically, she's got a boyfriend. And uh, her boyfriend, Ian, when she first met him, um, he, she had a big crush on him. But then she very early and quickly discovered that, and here I'm quoting from her piece, While it was attraction at first sight with Ian, his closet full of feminine dresses put a tiny dent in his desirability. 
from the very beginning of our relationship. Not enough to stop me from acting on my huge crush, but enough to notice there was an unexpected disconnect between what I thought I was okay with a man wearing and what I actually found appealing on his body. Intellectually, I enjoyed that Ian was rejecting gender norms and expectations. But physically, my desire didn't match. I'm a very progressive woman, and I do believe that men and women are labels that are fluid and can change. But I found myself unexpectedly uneasy with Ian's fondness for feminine frocks, a reaction that challenged the progressive ideals I'd prided myself on for decades. I'd long thought I was contributing to a progressive shift in society, that I was making a difference in how we define masculinity, and I was helping society to finally allow men to be emotional and to be vulnerable and to wear dresses if they wished. Well, um, suffice it to say that she is incredibly uncomfortable with him and finds herself physically repelled. And so she's struggling with this cognitive dissonance. She's struggling with this painful information that on one hand, her self-image is that of a very modern forward, progressive woman who knows from the latest pages of psychology today, she knows that there's no such thing as male and female, and that Ian's value has nothing to do with his gender. It's just, he's just another human being, just like me. But she can't help herself. And so what is, uh, what is Emily doing right now? She is trying her best to retain the relationship and to persuade herself that um, everything is fine and that she has to adjust herself to accept um, Ian's frilly dresses and, um, and, and that at the same time he is somebody she's drawn to. She's having a lot of trouble with it. Um, if I had to guess, I'm never going to find out, I don't think, but uh, if I had to guess, I don't think that relationship is probably uh, l too long-lived. I don't think it can be. But uh, we shall see. You know, if I ever do find out, I'll tell you it'll be interesting. But uh, for her, this challenge really comes into reality because she's saying to herself, wait a second, this whole notion that I am really a woman and I take joy in feeling feminine and I find myself irresistibly drawn to masculinity. This is a painful and cognitively dissonant idea because I know that none of this is true. There are no men and women. We're all the same. I know that. And so there's a part of me that's having trouble with it. But um, I've got to recognize that this male-female stuff is only old-fashioned. Uh, 
Hello, 1950s calling me. And as soon as I can adjust myself enough, I will be able to be comfortable with my boyfriend Ian wearing his uh, pretty outfits and uh, it's not going to make any difference. I will get myself used to it. That's what she says. Because this is just a silly old-fashioned idea I have that women should be women and men should be men. And guess what? The ultimate in attraction is between masculine and feminine. That's just an old-fashioned idea. There are uh, fascinating tweets all right. Um, a woman writes, and, and I've, I've marked these because I find them so utterly fascinating. Um, a woman who, um, who, who has a, a name on Twitter, something like traditional wife, which you know gives you a pretty good idea. Uh, it may not have been that exactly, I don't remember, but, uh, but I did write down the tweet. I love cooking meals for my husband. Well, does she get assaulted by a Niagara-like cascade of insults? And a lot of them revolve around the idea, hello, it's a modern time now. He should do the cooking as much as you. Hello, we're not in the 1950s. Oh, you're doing a huge disservice to feminism. Shut up and and worse epithets as well. Uh, People got really angry, really angry. Um, another woman with a similar uh, name on Facebook, um, she tweeted this, I love dressing in ways that I know my husband finds attractive. And she gets assaulted, not by two or three, but by dozens and scores of vituperative tweets attacking her because she likes dressing in a way that makes her husband feel enjoyment. (laughs) Can you believe it? And the attacks are always the same. All they have to say that's wrong with these things is, you're old-fashioned. But not a single one of them, and I really have looked, not a single one of them attacks the the substance on a thoughtful basis. Here's why... Here are three reasons why it's a bad mistake for a woman to dress the way her husband finds attractive. Uh, no, because I don't think there are three good reasons. for. I don't think there's one good reason. And so the attack is, you're setting feminism back 50 years. That's what they write. A guy wrote on Twitter as well, I wish to marry a woman who'll appreciate me going out and earning a living while she builds me a home. So what he's saying is, I want a traditional woman. Uh, Maybe they should all meet up on Twitter, I don't know. But uh, what he's saying, look, um, I consider it a privilege to support a wife. I want a wife who will allow me the privilege of doing so. And I'd like to know that I am protecting her from stress. You know, I want to share with you something that my daughter said to me last night. Um, She, and I just hesitated for a moment because um, I know that her husband and her son listen to this show. 
So they will, uh, they, uh, one of them was there when she said this to me. She said, you know, Daddy, I am very fortunate. I have a very unstressed life. She said, my life really has no stress at all. She said, I'm incredibly busy. I am raising seven children, and um, and the, the youngest two are, uh, are are very small, still in diapers. I'm homeschooling the family. I am very busy, she said. I, I don't have a minute. And she says, the truth is, I, I really look forward one day to being able to sleep for six hours in a stretch. She said, but I have no stress. And for that, I thank my husband. And that's right. My son-in-law basically either said or tacit, I don't know if they actually had this conversation, but uh, he said, I want you to take care of the family. I want you to raise the children. I want to come home to a lovely family every evening uh, from work. And in exchange, I will take care of all the stress. I'll make sure that if the furnace goes out, I'll get it fixed. If the roof leaks, I'll get it fixed. I'll make sure there's money in the bank account so you can buy everything we need. And in exchange for that, you fill me with the warmth and the glow and the appreciation of knowing that my children could not be in better hands because there's nobody else in the whole world who cares more about them than you and me. And I'm going to come home to an unstressed wife who can give me the attention I crave. That's wonderful. And I said to her, I said to her, well, that is a huge thank you to your husband. And she said, oh, I know that. This was just something that that happened. I, I had already prepared and decided what I was going to talk about on this show. But that's just something that happened out of the blue. I was just, you know, we were, my wife Susan and I were, were just watching her so patiently dealing. It was late in the day. The children were starting to get tired. It was close to bedtime. And she was just dealing with everybody patiently. She was dealing with everybody the way each child needed to be dealt with. And, and we, we must have expressed some admiration. And she said, look, here's the interesting thing. She says, I've often thought about this. I'm incredibly busy. I barely have a minute to myself but I have no stress. It's beautiful. It's exactly right. Old-fashioned, absolutely an old-fashioned family, very old-fashioned. But you see, some things are what they are. Some things are true. The, uh, the world of progressive secularism, that world of secular socialism, that world somehow believes that human beings are always and in every way mutable. There's no such thing as human nature. Everything can be changed. We are building a revolution. We are creating a brave new world where men and women will blur together into some kind of sexless uh, unity everything's going to it's going to be fantastic and there's going to be equality everybody's going to have the same amount of it look people talk like this worse than that people believe like that absolutely but certain things are what they are 
let me uh, let me say that um, I like the podcast format better than the video format. Now I could issue this podcast in video form as well, and you would just watch me speaking into a microphone. And a number of people have asked for that. And I've been contemplating it, but I do not lean that way intuitively, and I'll tell you why. Because whatever value I bring to your life, and I think I, I certainly am solemnly dedicated to bringing real value to your life by teaching you how the world really works, by teaching you ancient Jewish wisdom on friendship and family, on faith on finances, and on fitness. Yes, and that is value. But that value lies in my words, not in my face. And I will tell you this, even I'm sure even my closest friends, even my dear wife, I don't think that even on a good day she'd ever say to me or think, you know, you are one good-looking dude. (laughs) She wouldn't say it. Um, you know, uh, I uh, do not have any hair, I'm bald, but I have a more serious drawback. And this is something that used to be a fun uh, little demonstration, especially for kids, but also used for uh, students at kindergarten for psychology courses. And Uh, It used to be a little harder to do because we do it with photographs, but today we can do it digitally with, you don't even need Photoshop, it's so easy to do. But uh, uh, here's what you do. You take a picture of your face and then you uh, cut it in half vertically, right through the middle of your nose with a line between your eyes, cut down vertically, and now you've got two halves of your face. Out of the left half, build a mirror image so you now have a complete a complete face, which is a composite only of the left side of your face. And now out of the right half of your face, build a, a, a digital mirror image. So again, you have now a second face that is a composite of the right side of your face. And now when I look at those two complete faces, I am shocked to discover that I'm looking at two different people. Now, that's not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a multi-personality disorder sort of guy. It's not that. It's that my face is not symmetrical. It just isn't 100% symmetrical. The differences are small when we look at the face in, in overall and because we're accustomed to looking at faces. But when we examine it scientifically, uh, in the manner in which I've described, you actually see very clearly, hey, that's not a symmetrical face. Now, beautiful people, male and female, one of the things is they tend to have symmetrical faces. And you might say, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I'm somebody who likes asymmetrical faces. Okay, fine. So you're one in 10,000. Congratulations. But it doesn't change the fact which is that the overwhelming bulk of human beings, the majority of people, find symmetrical faces more attractive than asymmetrical faces. And you don't necessarily always consciously recognize it. You're not necessarily looking at somebody and saying, whoa, different shape eye over there. You're You're not aware of that. But subconsciously, it registers. 
And so one of the reasons I like this format is because you can focus on the words wherein the value lies and ignore the face, not part of the value proposition at all. And uh, and so there it is. Not only do the majority of us subconsciously sometimes prefer symmetrical faces, we oh, that's attractive. Not only that, but um, by a clever experiment, oh, it's about 15 years old now, done at the University of Exeter, and it's been repeated many times since then, so it's sort of really gone through the whole peer process, but uh, it's kind of an interesting experiment. What they did uh, in the south of England at the University of Exeter, they they, uh, were trying to study whether people do prefer in, a, in other words, is this is there a preference for beauty? And uh, you know, it's pretty obvious that if you take um, thirty pictures and you duplicate them, so you have an A B for every one of those pictures, one through thirty, each has an A B, and then you Photoshop modify so that photograph A of person number one is very good looking. You make them very symmetrical and beautiful. And photograph B of the same person is uh, a lot less pretty. So now you've got 30 different people. And each for each person, there are two photographs, an A picture and a B picture. The A picture has been made to look beautiful. The B picture has been made to look, shall we say, a little less beautiful or a lot less beautiful. And you now show this to huge numbers of people. There isn't even a question. It's not even close. Almost everybody will tell you A is the beautiful one, B is, you know, or, or you can even flip them, sometimes B, sometimes A. But the uh, the test always shows a preference for what we consider good-looking, attractive, not even a question. The idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it's a nice, polite, heartwarming statement, but it's absolutely false. And so what they did... Um, at University of Exeter is they said, let's take children before they've had a chance to be acculturated, before they've had a chance to hear people say, oh, that's a pretty woman, or hey, that's a good-looking guy. No, they took very little children, infants, babies, and uh, they prepared these photographs, large, so make it easy for undeveloped eyes to see them, and then they set up equipment that allowed them to monitor Uh, when they held up these two pictures simultaneously in front of the child, they were able to see to which picture were the child's eyes drawn. And um, there it is. They they held uh, the babies upright about 30 centimeters away from the two photographs, and then they monitored very carefully where the baby's eyes spent most time focused. And the answer is that not only do grown-ups, not only do adults recognize beauty and prefer looking at it, but so do little babies. There are certain realities in the world. Beauty, good looks, is a reality. Male-female attraction is a reality. Masculinity and femininity are a reality. That men like feeling masculine and that women like feeling feminine, yes, these are absolute realities. And so uh, all of these ideas that are really 
part of who we are. And yes, I've spent a lot of time uh, over the years, and you know there are many, many, many accumulated shows now. Uh, you could really uh, commit yourself to a course in ancient Jewish wisdom and just go back and catch up and make sure you've you've uh, you've listened to early ones. But I've spent a fair amount of time speaking about our uniqueness, right? The fact that each and every one of us is unique. But I perhaps have not spent enough time or any time speaking about the ways in which we are the same. And that's a little bit of what I'm discussing now. There are ways in which we are all the same. Are there always going to be the occasional exceptions? Is there going to be the man who wants to feel feminine and the woman who wants to feel masculine? Yes. Yes, there are. Absolutely. But it's the exception that proves the rule. And so what happens is that as people reject this, uh, these essential aspects of human nature, as they reject these ideas as old-fashioned and uh, anti-progressive and primitive and Neanderthal, as they reject all these ideas about human nature, uh, human, pe- human beings, men, are more competitive than women. Oh, how can you say such a thing? That's sexist. Listen, labeling my statement doesn't indict it. When you call my statement racist, you're going to have to, as far as I'm concerned, that isn't the end of the conversation, it's the beginning. You now have to explain to me exactly what you mean. If I say something and you say, oh, that's anti-Semitic, I reject that. You're going to have to tell me what you mean. I don't feel guilty because you choose to label my ideas, views, arguments, or statements. That's a very sexist way of looking at things. You know, you're wasting my time. Is that all you have to say, that that's a sexist way of looking at things? And I'm supposed to duck and cower and hide my eyes in embarrassment because you have labeled my statement as sexist? What world do you live in? How ridiculous is that? You're going to have to tell me why my statement is either false or repugnant by some absolute standard or else back down. Go and hang out with other foolish people who have lost the ability to analyze, who have forgotten how to think, who ignore the excitement of discussing a challenging idea with a friend or a spouse or a sister or a brother or a child, a son or a daughter or a parent. So that's what happens. When you allow the phrase, I can't help it, into your mind, what you're doing is you're banishing thought. And part of the collateral damage of secular fundamentalism and progressivism and socialism, just all tired different ways of saying the same thing, part of the collateral damage from progressivism and socialism is a growing conviction that people cannot help what we do. Please hear this very clearly. The message you are receiving from the culture, 
from magazines, from television, from videos, from politicians, from entertainment figures. The message you get from everybody, including fake scientists, by which I mean to say, yes, science doesn't lie, but scientists do, in exactly the same way that the Bible doesn't lie, but yeah, there are clergymen who do lie. Science may not lie, but scientists most definitely do. And there are scientists that will tell you this, just as there are entertainers and uh, sports and athletes. Everybody, Many, many, many people are going to give you this message, all based on the idea of, I can't help it. And that is this conviction that we cannot help what we do. We are predisposed to whatever we are. We had nothing to do with it. In no way are you complicit with your current condition, in your current condition, I should better say. In no way are you complicit in your current condition. Now, you know that I have stated repeatedly something which is so painful that your mind will tend to reject it because we have a defense mechanism built into all of us. It's called cognitive dissonance. And that is the tendency of our minds and our brains to reject anything that hurts our emotions, anything that makes us feel bad, our minds reject. And it's very important to be able to overcome that, right? If, uh, if I've just bought a new car and somebody comes over to me and says, oh, your car looks new. How long have you had it? Well, as a matter of fact, two days, just got it yesterday. Person says, oh, may I ask, uh, how much did you pay for it? Now, most people don't say that, but this is theoretical. And I say, uh, I bought, I paid $10,000 for it. Person rolls his eyes. I say, excuse me, are you, you like, what was that about? He says, oh, I shouldn't really tell you. And you know, when people say that, they can't wait to tell you. And I said, no, no, go ahead, tell me. He says, well, uh, our friend Jerry just bought exactly the same car. He paid 8000 so I think you may have been taken for 2000 You probably didn't know that you're supposed to bargain with the uh, seller. And I have cognitive dissonance right away. You know what my brain tells me? <laughs> I'm sure Jerry bought the same make, but this person doesn't realize they're different models. And my model came with a lot of different extras, like electronic ashtrays and uh, who knows what else. And so Jerry did pay 8000 less, but he got a far inferior vehicle. Mine has every bell and whistle available and imaginable. That's cognitive dissonance because it's too painful for my brain to allow into my head the notion that I got ripped off by $2,000. And so overcoming cognitive dissonance is quite important in terms of your development, in terms of your growth. And, uh, and, and growth, obviously, very important, right? Because something that is so unknown that I'm almost tempted to say, I'm telling you a huge, tremendous, unimaginably monumental secret. But it is important. Here it is. Our success in life has much more to do with what we are than what we know. Much more important to know to uh, to realize that we are successful in whatever area we choose because of what we are, much more than what we know. And so, um, very important.
Very important to realize that. One of the things that uh, I've often said, and if you're a regular listener, you've heard it before, one of the things I often say is that in 99% of us, today's financial problems are the result of yesterday's bad decisions. Now, because unthinking people always substitute slogans for thought, one of their slogans, and by the way, whenever I've I've, uh, put this out on Twitter uh, or on Facebook, I immediately get assaulted on this. You're blaming the victim, blaming the victim, as if blaming the victim is somehow wrong. Now, I'm sure there are cases where it's wrong to blame the victim, but there are plenty of places it's right to blame the victim, as if nobody is ever complicit in his own misfortune. Really? On none of the bad things that have happened to you due to you? You know, I've told you before that if you want to find out the name of the biggest saboteur, you want to find out the name of the main person who sabotaged you over years and years and years, you can easily find out his name. Look at your driver's license. You'll find the name and the photograph of the person most responsible for hurting you in your life. It's true. Now, are there occasions where a person minds his own business and gets beaten up by a horrible bully? Yes, of course there are cases like that. But we all recognize those cases. What few people are willing to recognize are the many, many, many other kind of cases where we accident- we started up with a heavyweight boxer without realizing who he was. And when he knocked us out, we said, oh, he's a bully. But no, he isn't. You started up with him. Yes, there is such a thing as being complicit in your own misfortune. But cognitive dissonance interferes and stops you from recognizing that. The pain that it causes to say, you know, do you know where I could be in life today if I hadn't made bad decisions yesterday? Do you know where I could be? Do you remember back in 2003 when I made that choice? I wish I wouldn't have done that. It's painful to contemplate that. Regrets really hurt. So much so that there are fascinating instruments that show what's going on in the brain. And uh, you can really see depicted graphically on the screen of the machine these flashes of what appear to be deep disturbance whenever the subject is asked to think about his most deepest regrets and his most profound regrets. It is very painful. There's no question about it. And so we tend to reject this idea. When you reject that idea, you are condemning yourself to perpetual stagnation. You are condemning yourself to remain tomorrow exactly who you were yesterday. But the excitement of today is that today is the day on which we are given the gift of action to make sure that tomorrow is nothing like yesterday was. I don't, I don't diminish how appealing is the idea of, I can't help it. It's a wonderful thing. It's so beautiful to have in your life because you are never complicit in your own misfortune. I can't help it. 
It's not as if I chose to do that. I can't help it. And so you never have to change. You never have to grow. You never have to develop. And growing and changing and developing is the secret to making tomorrow better than yesterday was. But you can only do that today. And it's so, it's so important because the, the life you enjoy with your finances, with your family, with your friends, with your fitness even, with your faith, all of these things depend not on what you know, but on what you are. And so being able to change is crucial, but change is hard. And it means acknowledging your mistakes. Very difficult to do. But if you can go through that painful process, then you're on the road to a tomorrow which is far better than yesterday was. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really fascinating, but uh, I was talking recently to somebody who is connected uh, in, to the running of a very large investment fund, uh, a well-known name. You'd, you'd have heard of it. And, uh, you know, billions of dollars under management. And uh, the person was looking to hire some people. And uh, you would have thought that he wanted people with extensive Wall Street experience. He'd wanted people who um, uh, understand economics, people who've had a a track record as effective analysts, uh, people who uh, understand econometrics and who can quantify minute changes in share value. Somebody who knows all those things, right? You know, he doesn't. He says, all I'm looking for is a person, he said, it's an old-fashioned word, and what I'm looking for incorporates more than that, but I don't know a better word than integrity. But what about all those things I just said? You're operating a hedge fund. You're operating an investment fund. You're running a, uh, a very lean operation. You know, it's not as if you have thousands of employees. Every employee has to pull his weight. So surely... Now, as you look to hire some new people, surely you are looking for people who do understand econometrics and people who understand, who who dream financial statements. He said, no, all that stuff I can teach them easily in their first year with us. But what I can't teach is the quality, the internal quality of the person. He said, all I want is somebody who is absolutely honest Somebody And I really, I want somebody with no deep vices. I want somebody with no addictions. I don't want to discover down the road they have a gambling addiction. I don't want to discover they have a pornography addiction that blows up in their faces and makes a mess in my office. I don't want any of that. I just, I want a high quality human being. Everything else I will teach them. In other words, the stuff you need to know, that's easy. The stuff that you are, now that's a lot harder. And to work on that is the essence of becoming a superior and more effective, a bigger and better person. And the benefits, the benefits accrue to your family, the people you live with. They accrue to your friends. The benefits accrue to your finances. Because in the final analysis, on a year-by-year basis, in only very few occupations, Does your success depend on what you know? 
you know even you might think you know in a field like uh, uh like surgery somebody's a surgeon you'd think well that's all about what you know yes it may be the actual act of of conducting surgery depends on what you know but the reality is that the extent of your practice the uh, the way it grows the way your reputation expands the way more and more people want your services now that depends not on what you know because nobody knows what you know it all depends on what you are what you radiate and in the same way that we may not always know what makes us say gosh she's an attractive woman or hey that's a good-looking guy we don't necessarily know what makes us say that now having having told you um having heard that it has to do with symmetry that's one of the things you'll probably start looking out for but in the same way that we almost intuitively recognize what is beauty we also recognize what is high quality not always easy to identify not always easy to put our finger on exactly what makes us think that but if i use the terms big and petty you'll probably easily agree with me when i say we are all more inclined to take advice from somebody we perceive as a big person a big human being a high quality person we are less inclined to listen to a petty person and so it is whether you are a sales professional or whether you're a surgeon whether you're a ballet dancer or a bookkeeper uh, whether you are a proctologist or a plumber it doesn't matter your success only marginally depends on what you know but predominantly depends on what you are and those are the things we talk about here on the rabbi daniel lapin show and so because cognitive dissonance makes you reject the idea of banishing i can't help it from your vocabulary and expunging it from your soul because it's a wonderful thing to have it makes you feel better it's like a drug it's like alcohol it's like compulsive sex all of these things allow you to escape reality reality is you can help it yeah that's the reality let me say it again loudly and clearly you can help it and that's so important that and here i'm actually being serious you may think i'm i'm being frivolous but i'm not because thousands of years have taught us the value of religious rituals the passage of thousands of years have taught us the significance of social ceremonies a ceremony or a ritual is much more valuable than you might have thought So yes, write the words in big black marker on a piece of paper. I can't help it. And then set fire to it. Light a match and burn it and let it shrivel up to a little crinkly piece of ash. I mean it. Because what you need to bring into your soul is the words, the phrase and the conviction i can help it really important 
because all the messaging you get from society, all the messaging you get from popular culture, and I don't care where you live in the world, and I know, thank God, we've got listeners everywhere today. I love that. And don't forget to keep telling me where you're listening from. Um, Everywhere the message is always the same. We can't help what we do. You're obese, that's because you have a predisposition to obese. This has nothing to do with what you eat, how you eat, and how you exercise or don't exercise. Uh, Alcoholism, you drink, yeah, you have a predisposition to it. It runs in your family. You couldn't help becoming an alcoholic. Um, Sexual addictions. You know, you, 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 you have a sickness. You need, you need sympathy and compassion, and you need treatment. Nothing to do with character. Laziness. Laziness. You're predisposed. Everybody has a different arrangement of molecules and different neural wiring that just came about randomly in your brain. And you, poor fellow, you got a predisposition to laziness. I'm so sorry about it. I really feel for you. It must be hard to live with, but you can't help it. It's just who you are. Please know that as stupid as that sounds, it is what people are being told. You have a predisposition to violence. Not your fault. You're out there punching people coming up behind them and knocking them out. That's not your fault. You're predisposed to it by something else. Are you susceptible to drugs? Yeah, we get that, you poor person. Um, you, uh, you know, what is the favorite thing? When people are, uh, are, are when their vices are revealed and they're discovered to... Uh, to be gruesome and horrible harassers of women. You know what most of these guys, well, I've gone to treatment. I've gone to Arizona to the special treatment place. And we're all supposed to say, oh, that's great. He's really taking responsibility for himself. No, it's not. It's a vacation because he doesn't buy into the basic cure, which is I could have helped it. I can help it. I can stop doing it tomorrow easy no correction i just made a mistake it's not easy but you can do it you can do it because you are not a camel or a cow or a kangaroo you are a human being touched by the finger of god capable of infinite creativity capable of infinite transformation it's incredible But what we're being told all the time is that we are nothing but accidental, random products of a mechanistic and entirely physical universe. That's just what we are. In fact, we are just like animals. (laughs) In fact, we are animals. Not only is this an inevitable accompaniment to socialism and secular fundamentalism, as the culture has got rid of God and got rid of faith since the early 1960s, talking about America, elsewhere, different dates, but not by much, Uh, not only is um, the, the, um, the idea of, I can't help it, not only is it very comfortable 
and convenient. It's great. It's like a drug. It makes you feel good. It makes you, it's, it's an easy way to deal with cognitive dissonance, the pain of unpleasant information. You know you are wrecking your life. Do you know that every day goes by is one less day you have to build a wonderful future? Stop it! Stop it! I can't help it! Yeah, that's right. I get it. But not only is it a very comfortable and drugging kind of sensation to keep saying to yourself, I can't help it, but um, it's actually something that any government with a tendency to see itself as more important than it really is, and that, after all, is, after all, most governments, isn't it? Uh, It's very convenient for governments. Why? Think about it. If you want to expand the power and reach and size of government, then a population that is made up of people who believe that they cannot exert any control over themselves, and that those people incapable of any independent reshaping of their lives that is a people that needs government because without government that's a recipe for anarchy and disaster if you have a society made up of people and if you wonder about what's going on in the streets of america and some other cities i can't help it lies at the root of a lot of it because as more and more people in the population buy into this evil and destructive pathology of i can't help it the more the society tends to decay and the more we see a rise of anarchy and chaos and the more necessary a firm-fisted government becomes. And so the more the population lacks self-control, the, the more everybody can evidently see that we do need more government and bigger government. See, that's what's so important here. There is actually an interest that government has in expanding the tendency for everybody to believe. Yes, I can't help it. The more that people believe that, the more chaotic their lives become. And the more they need government to provide them with housing and to provide them with medicine, to provide their children with education, to do everything. Because people who believe, I can't help it, are people who literally will not be able to do anything for themselves at all. Not only will they not have independence, they don't even deserve it. It's, it's kind of funny, of course, that the same people who say, I can't help it, they somehow think that their rulers, the people they elect, they think, oh, those people are uniquely rational. We, of course, have no self-control. But our rulers, now they are people of great wisdom, and in fact the rulers themselves believe that too. Look, the rulers' cravings for power, and that is that is true. Look, I've spoken about this before, and I've had wonderful correspondence from many of you. By the way, you want to write to me, go to our website. On the section about us, there's a place, contact us. Many of you have written, and I found it fascinating, um, some of you really had trouble believing that there is a real dark desire that many human beings have to control other people. 
exerting authority feels good. Not to everybody. And by the way, if you feel no sensual pleasure, if you feel no deep thrill running down your spine at exerting power and authority over other people, that doesn't mean you're a saint. It really doesn't. There could be other meanings as well. I'm just letting you know that. The the, the topic is for another time and another conversation. But uh, you may well not feel it. But don't think that that means nobody feels it. And a lot of people who feel it like to go into, and I love the euphemism, public service. Right? That means going into government. Because nowhere else can you more effectively exert authority and power over other people. Just watch the way you get treated when you're standing at the post office counter next time. Or wait till see what happens when you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles. Or anywhere else where you have to come into personal contact with government. And you will see that in many cases, not every case, but in many cases, government attracts people who really do feel that thrill running down their spine at the ability to exert power and authority over other people. And so uh, you have to be aware of that. Remember that the rulers do have a craving for power. And you've got to know that one of the ways they indulge that craving for power is by imposing burdens and obstacles on the ruled, on everybody else. Rulers realize that they are needed to impose the control that the population lacks. So not only by believing deep down in your heart that you really have no power over your life and that you do things because that's your nature. You have human nature. It's just the way it is. And you can't help yourself. And it's because your parents raised you a certain way or because you have a certain genetic predisposition. Whatever people tell you doesn't matter. But however you come to believe, I can't help it. However you come to believe that means you have less and less control over your own life. And the more you need government and the more government will grow and the more that government power grows, the less power you have. But it doesn't matter because you've already renounced and relinquished that power in the first place by saying, I don't have the power to transform my life. The mistakes I make, I just make because I can't help it. And that is exactly how this works. So the way it comes out is that individuals, all of us, um, have a deep, dark desire to believe, I can't help it, because that way we're not responsible for anything that we do. After all, we are the passive victims of external materialistic circumstances. Now, if you have any connection with God, then you know that he created us, above all, with free choice. We are the only creatures on the planet that are not pre-programmed, right? Um, If, as I always give as an example, if, if a wolf devours a sheep of a Colorado farmer, nobody suggests that we hold a symposium to discuss the declining standards of morality among Colorado wolves. We don't do that because wolves eat sheep whenever they can. 
And what instead, we speak to the rancher about building a better fence. Animals do what they do. But God created human beings as the only creature on the planet with absolute free moral choice. Now, this is fundamental not only to our understanding a relationship between God and people, but it's also pretty basic for any society or any country that wants to establish a legal system. Because if you do not validate this, if you fail to validate that everybody has free choice, then you have just wiped out your entire system of jurisprudence. You've utterly obliterated your legal system. Because from then onwards, every single person who stands before the judge accused of some heinous crime or another simply says, I was out of control, Your Honor. I couldn't help it. I can't help it. And if we accept that as a defense morally, then it's also defense legally. And from then onwards, you cannot punish criminal behavior which absolutely guarantees a huge surge in criminality in that society. Hey, tell me, are you beginning to see the overall pattern by means of which societies that lose a connection with God eventually start deteriorating and running down and passing through decadence on their way to oblivion. That's what happens. And so, uh, obviously, the alternative is a a law-abiding population, a population that recognizes free choice, knows on an individual level that every single mistake I made, I made willingly. I, I regret most of them, if not all of them, but I was the one who did them. That is a huge step forward in making tomorrow better than yesterday. But it's also a very good thing for a society, because now you have a society that, as the founders of the United States of America understood, a society that will be able to handle the responsibilities of freedom and independence, a society that will be able to resist the seductive call of big government. Enlarge us, vote for us, give us power, and we will promise you security and equality. (laughs) Imagine a completely law-abiding population never would have needed a TSA. That was one of many dreadful decisions made by President George W. Bush, um, who was uh, president from 2000 to 2008. And, uh, and he, um, he, he, he had this idea, wrong, that the federal government could provide airport security better than private organizations. Where did he get that idea? From looking at Amtrak? from looking at the way the Veterans Administration runs, from looking at the way the post office runs, from looking at the way that even the FBI has become corrupted by politics? Where did he get that idea? 
what a, a far better plan would have been for each airport and each airline to come up with their own systems. And they would have learned from each other. They, they would have adapted and modified and improved. And there would have been competition. And people would have learned to prefer the airports and the airlines that handled the security issues more effectively. But we were denied all those advantages. And President George W. Bush, uh, with great folly, set up the TSA. It is today a vast government bureaucracy of over 55,000 employees. And anybody who has traveled in, in the last 20 years and has endured the outrageousness of the TSA, the arrogance, and the obvious delight that so many of its blue-shirted agents take in exerting authority and power over the traveling public. You know, the TSA, when you go through the TSA, you know what it's like? It's like the end terminal stages of a bad marriage. Too much intimacy with too much hostility. 55,000 employees. Let me put that in perspective for you. Um, Alpharetta, Georgia is not as big as the TSA. There are more people in the TSA than who live in Alpharetta, Georgia. There are more people in the TSA than live in Dubuque, Iowa. Uh, there are more people who live in, Cooper, in, in the TSA than live in Cupertino, California, the home of Apple. There are more people in the TSA than live in Corvallis, Oregon. There are more people in the TSA than live in Idaho Falls, Idaho. There are more people in the TSA than live in Marietta, Georgia. There are more people in the TSA than live in New Brunswick, New Jersey. There are more people in the TSA than live in Hoboken, New Jersey. There's more people who work in the TSA than who live in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. There are more people who live, who work in the TSA than live in Galveston, Texas, or in Coral Gables, Florida, or in Olympia, the capital of the state of Washington, or San Luis Obispo, California, or Palm Springs, California. All of these busy, thriving, flourishing cities have fewer people than the TSA has employees. That's, that is a very, very big bureaucracy. Oh, and in case you didn't know, you probably suspected quite correctly that the TSA employees are all unionized. That's right. And they belong to the American Federation of Government Employees that gives over 96% of its financial gifts to the Democratic Party. So George W. Bush has created... 55,000 new voters for the Democratic Party, new sources of funding for the Democratic Party. <laughs> What's there to say? What's there to say? We wouldn't even have needed the TSA at all, again, if nobody operated on the principle of, I can't help it. The TSA has just grown and grown and grown. You think it's just airports? They, they secure the entire transportation network. Um, Four million miles of roadways now come under TSA. 140,000 miles of railroad track. Uh, bridges. 470 tunnels. 360 harbors. 
3,700 uh, marine terminals. Um, <laughs> they're also responsible now for nearly 3 million miles of pipeline. <laughs> I mean, do you feel more secure now? Those blue-shirted men and women who grope you at the airport, they're now also taking care of safety of harbors. So if any bad guys have the horrible notion of shipping in a bad bomb on a container, you can rest assured that they will be foiled by who? Yeah, that's right. The same blue-shirted folks who take care of you in the airport. So what have we gained? Very little. What have we lost? Another 55,000 people voting for enlarged government. Wouldn't it be necessary? If you can only persuade a populace that they cannot help how they behave, you as a government are in good shape. If you can persuade a populace that theft is caused by poverty, if you can persuade people that looting is the result of slavery, and if you can persuade people that indiscriminate spending on consumer items, instead of saving and investing, is caused by the evil of capitalism, and so on and so forth, then all you're doing is increasing anarchy and chaos in your society, which makes people more and more willing to accept enlarged and overreaching government. It's pretty bad. But the real thing, the real thing is, and this is what I'm mostly concerned about, and that is the welfare of my happy warriors. Right? That's really what concerns me. Yes, I am very worried about the decline of society. I'm worried about how Western civilization does seem to be on the skids. I am worried about all those things. But I'm far more concerned to do everything I can to increase the effectiveness and the success that our happy warriors have in finance, in their social relationships, their friendships, their family relationships, their faith, and their physical welfare, their fitness. Those are the things that really do concern me. And so for you, please just do whatever it takes to eliminate I can't help it from your entire mental spiritual vocabulary and um we've just we we've, we've got to realize that this 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 problem of our rulers wanting us to believe that we have no power over ourselves and that we only can depend on government. That's the only really reliable place to place our faith. Well, they're forgetting something. People do need to believe. And just as deep down, every woman knows that she prefers a man who does not wear a dress, all people do need to believe in something bigger than themselves. We all do better when we have that belief. And we all need it so badly that subconsciously it will infect those who claim no belief 
with the notion that they have to believe in the little g of government. That's right. As human beings, we are going to believe. We were literally created to believe, and you may as well know that. And the only choice you've really got, now I know this is going to be cognitive dissonance for a whole lot of people listening, you really are being hurt and pained as I say these things, because you do not want to believe these things. I know that. But it's my solemn duty to tell them to you anyway. And you can then decide whether you're going to wrap yourself around it, grapple with it, discuss it with friends and family, and finally decide what you really think about it. We're created to believe. Our choice is the little G of government or the big G of God. Now, it's not that people deliberately set out to believe in government. It's that it is almost built into us that you are going to believe. And if you are deprived of a belief in God, well, then you're going to believe automatically in government. That is how it happens. You don't consciously say, oh, I believe so much in government. You know, you really are aware of the failures of government. You're aware of the flaws of government. But if you've rejected belief in God, then that is inevitably where your belief system is going to find a home. So um, you just got to realize that belief in government encourages the idea that I can't help it. That's true. Belief in government. If government is the core of your belief system, then you are going to find it much more tempting to say, I can't help it. That's really how it is. Whereas belief in God supports the independent notion that I am captain of my ship. I will steer it where I will. And if its journey prospers, it's to my credit. And if it founders on the rocks of fate, well, then I did that too. And, uh, and that's really how it goes. Belief in government encourages you to believe that I can't help it. Belief in God encourages your conviction in your own freedom and independence and helps you realize that you are the one who makes the decisions for your life. And you just have to ask yourself, what is going to make you more successful in the areas of the five Fs? Are you going to have better friendships, better family, better relationships in faith, better fitness, and better finances? If you say to yourself, I can help it, or you're going to be better and more successful in all those things, if your life slogan is, I can't help it. So, um, yeah, faith, by the way, is part of that. You know, everybody understands family, friends. Yeah, we got that. Fitness, of course, we all understand that. We all go to the gym. Uh, finances, fitness, yeah. Family, friends, yeah, we got all that. But faith, yeah, faith also. Look, I don't just have faith. Um, people like saying, hey, you know, um, uh, I, I, I have no self-control, so I'm, I'm obese. No, nobody does that. Do something about it. People don't say that. People have to work on faith just like they have to work on finances and working on fitness, being careful what you eat, 
being careful with how you exercise and what you do, all of that, those are things that don't come naturally and neither does faith. You know, people sometimes say, well, you know, what can I, what can I do? You know, I just don't believe in God. Uh, I can't help it. <laughs> yeah, of course you can. Your well-being actually needs that. And again, look, I'm, I'm not the boss of you. All I'm doing is telling you things which I know full well are going to be difficult and uh, in many cases um, unpleasant and painful, and you're free to reject them. We're still friends, but, uh, but I'm just telling you how it really is. As surely as most women prefer a masculine man not wearing lacy dresses and women's underwear, um, most human beings will do better if they have a connection with God. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And, uh, and it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily. Having a conversation, talking to the Almighty, can make a lot of people feel self-conscious and awkward. So I recommend that you don't do it on the train or at work when there are a lot of people around. You're probably better off having a little chat with God, maybe your first ever. Try it out. Go out into the garden, go to a park, uh, you know, take, take a walk where there's no other people around, maybe Maybe there's a nice area to hike and you just take a walk and maybe you'll find a nice rock to sit down or sit down with your back against a shady tree and uh, just try it out. Have a little conversation. You'll be surprised. I'll tell you that. You'll be surprised. Make sure you write and tell me because I like hearing about these experiences people um, bring themselves as a result of becoming part of the happy warrior community. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons, plain and simple, by the way, is that in the same way that s believing in government tends to make people say, I can't help it, whereas belief in God tends to make people say, I can help it, it's also true that a belief in government tends to make people pessimistic. They do. They, people feel pessimistic uh, about the planet, pessimistic about the weather, pessimistic about the oceans, pessimistic about everything. Whereas a, a belief in God does exactly the opposite, tends to make us optimistic. And uh, it, it's really interesting because this improved functioning of society, in other words, the benefits that a connection with God brings to an entire society can actually be seen um, throughout the Middle Ages in Europe. Look, this is really fascinating stuff. And I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm not Christian. I'm a Jewish rabbi. But, um, but I, I, I do prefer civilization to barbarism. And Christianity brought civilization to Europe. And you can see it, you know, from, from about the Edict of Milan. This was in the year 313, right? So it's, it's in the period of the Roman Empire. Emperor Constantine um, permits Christianity throughout the Roman Empire and lets, lets Christian re Christians recover their rights. And, and, and Christianity literally starts spreading all of, through Europe. Uh, by by 700, 
it's already in England. And I mean, there there's some extraordinary stories and amazing people. Um, the Venerable Bede was a, uh, a an early clergyman in the north of England in about the year 700, somewhere there. So from 313 onwards, Christianity is spreading throughout Europe, and, and nobody really knows what made this happen. But over the period of about a thousand years, uh, it covers all of Europe, finally reaching the Baltic states as well. So the places we now know of as you know, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, all of them become Christian as well. Now, you know, why do I say it brought civilization? Well, because Rome wasn't civilized before Christianity. What? How can you say Rome wasn't civilized? Well, it wasn't. It was better than what was going on elsewhere in the world at the time. You know, no question, the other parts of the world were, were very, very barbaric. But Rome was also, think about it, wholesale slaughter of animals brought to Rome from Africa and from Asia for no purpose but to entertain the crowds in the Colosseums. Slaughtering of animals. And if that isn't enough, the slaughtering of human beings, the whole gladiator film, all of this was pre-Christian Roman Empire. Um, I mean, what was going on in the Roman Empire back then? Infanticide, slavery, pederasty, by the way, children. Children were, were used by adults. And amazingly enough, by the high Middle Ages, all of this stuff is gone. It's gone. Christianity has got rid of the barbarism, and civilization came to Europe. It's extraordinary. Now, uh, another time, I will try and remember to tell you uh, really what caused the spread of Christianity. It's not generally discussed. There are, there's a lot of argument about it, but uh, there is uh, something I'll be able to tell you, which you will see will make a lot of sense to you in terms of just why and how Christianity during that period, from the Edict of Milan, uh, Christianity spreads throughout Europe. And so much so, by the way, that uh, by, well, why don't I tell you this? exactly 449 years ago today right because i am recording this show on october the 7th and october the 7th in the year 1571 no that's not when i'm recording the show but on october the 7th in the year 1571 right by which time christianity dominates all of europe what happened was the combined christian navies of Christian Europe destroyed the Muslim fleet of the Ottoman Empire. It was a huge one-day engagement in the seas between Italy and Greece. You know what's interesting to me, by the way? It was the last naval engagement of history between ships powered by banks of rowers. In the case of the Muslims, uh, the rowers were all slaves, and in the case of the uh, the Christian ships, um, they were usually enlisted sailors. Um, by the end of that day, 40,000 Muslim bodies were floating in the ocean. And 
it was really a most remarkable coalition between all these different nations that had had a long history of warring with each other, Spain, Venice, Italy, many, many other principalities, all of them got together under the banner of Christianity and set out to once and for all end the Muslim marauders and evict them from the Western Mediterranean. This was known as the Battle of Lepanto. And um, what's, what's really interesting about it is the, the, the scale of this. Um, so, you know, uh, John of Austria, a Christian knight, uh, was, was made the commander. And uh, under him came all these other ships. Nations sent uh, about 210 galleys, right? big rowing warships, and they took on about 280 ships that were sailing under Ali Pasha and Mohammed Sirocco, uh, the Muslim and Ottoman commanders of their fleet. So about 225 or 230 Christian ships, and that's what it was. Make no mistake. You know, it sounds um, uh, almost obsolete today. I mean, today we don't think of, of World War II as a war between Christianity and barbarism, but it was. And at the time, in the middle of the 20th century, people knew that and people thought and understood it in those terms. We don't use that terminology today. But in 1571, there was no doubt about it. It was a war between Islam and Christianity, and 40,000 Muslims were killed. Uh, 10,000 Christians were killed. The Christians lost 13 ships. The Muslims lost uh, about 180 ships. Um, many of the rowers in the Muslim ships were Christian slaves, because up until that time, the Muslims used to maraud along the coast of Europe all the way to Gibraltar, and they used to attack coastal towns and capture Christians as slaves. And do you want to know how many Christian slaves were freed at the Battle of Lepanto on the 7th of October in the year 1571? Over 12,000 Christian slaves were freed. Pretty amazing, isn't it? And uh, this happens because at that point, Europe is Christian and the bonds of Christianity were able to overcome the separateness and distinctiveness of the various national interests. And they were able to put together a Christian fleet, which once and for all succeeded in demolishing Muslim power in the Mediterranean, which up until then uh, had been very, very problematic. Uh, the Barbary pirates on the southern shore of the Mediterranean continued a little later. And um, as you know, uh, it was soon after the founding of the new United States that uh, the new government of the United States decided that unlike England and other countries, America would no longer pay tribute to the pirates, the Muslim Barbary pirates. And in fact, the uh, young United States sent ships and they finished off what was left of Muslim power in the Western Mediterranean. They ended it 
and um, and that really set America on the path of international dominance and prestige because of the gratitude felt by so many of the European nations that up until then had had to pay tribute every year by uh, to the Muslims who nonetheless continued um, capturing slaves, Christian slaves, and uh, and. I mean, and this this went on for hundreds of years, but finally that was terminated. And so that is a, a quick overview of the entire story. Uh, it's an abbreviated story, but it's the connection between national and societal welfare and faith and the tool of faith, the benefit of faith, the uh, one of the advantages of faith, which is the encouraging of a view of life that says, I can do it. Whereas the gradual deterioration of society is always accompanied by the expansion through the populace of the noxious potion of, I can't help it, not my fault. And that is the choice that lies before every happy warrior every day. Are you going to believe the, I can't help it? Or are you going to be able to stand erect and look every challenge in the eye and say, I can do it? It's as simple as that. That is the choice. And I know that every happy warrior is able to endure the pain, endure the challenge, and do the right, do what is the right thing when it has to be done, and say, yes, I can do it. And that way you will be assured of a wonderful week ahead, a week of great times, taking care of your finances, your physical fitness, your friendships, your family, and your faith, all of which will help you make absolutely sure that tomorrow is a whole lot better than yesterday. And that's because you know what you have to do today. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Till next week, God bless.